0: Hello, and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett, and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Hopefully, everyone listening is feeling safe and well at the moment. Now, November 20th, 2020, is International Children's Day. In this episode of our podcast, I'm joined by Jerome Marston, researcher with the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack. This coalition is an NGO which monitors and advocates against attacks on education, such as armed group bombing schools or using them as military bases, forced recruitment, and killings of school students and school personnel. Jerome's research areas are threats to human rights, civilian resilience in conflict zones, and urban violence. So, thank you so much, Jerome, for joining me this evening, all the way from Rhode Island. Uh, It's great to have you here. Absolutely,
1: uh, Colette, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to speak with you and your listeners.
0: So, in my introduction, I mentioned the fact that you are with the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack. Can you fill our listeners in a little bit on what prompted the establishment of this organization, first of all, and a bit about what it does?
1: Absolutely. I would be very happy to. Um, So the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack is a group of organizations, including UN agencies and civil society organizations, concerned with attacks on schools and universities and their students and staff in armed conflicts globally. The organizations come from human rights, education and emergencies, higher education, and the humanitarian fields. We were formed in 2010. And big picture, we advocate for the protection of students, teachers, schools, and universities from attack uh, in armed conflicts around the world. And um, to dive in a little bit more specifically, We sort of work on four primary, um, we work in four primary areas. Uh, First, we work on raising awareness about attacks on education and the impacts that they have. Uh, Second, we seek improved systems for monitoring and reporting attacks on education and the military use of schools and universities. Third, we look to encourage accountability for perpetrators of attacks on education. And then finally, we promote effective policies and programs for the prevention, limiting, uh, and limiting of attacks, and also to respond to attacks if they do occur.
0: OK, thank you. Um, now, you know, when we talk about educational disadvantage in an Irish context, and there are countries that would be similar to Ireland, we're talking particularly about, you know, the likes of underfunding or educational disadvantage in socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. Um, for children and, and personnel in educational institutions in areas in armed conflict, um, there's a much more immediate danger in terms of, of life and death. Um, what impact does this type of attack have, both within the countries um, on which you study and you engage with, but also internationally.
1: Absolutely. Um, so let me uh, introduce sort of the scope of these attacks. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about what we mean when we're talking about attacks, because attacks on education is kind of a broad term. Um, and then let me tell you um, just briefly about where they're happening and then really dive into the, um, into the impact so that your listeners uh, can better understand um, Yet, yeah, kind of the areas that we're working in, which are not, um, that generally are not the US or Irish contexts. Um, so, we, between the years of 2015 and 2019, we identified over 11,000 reported attacks on education or incidents of military use. And these occurred in 93 countries. But as you say, we focus on countries uh, in armed conflict or situations of insecurity. So in particular, we focus on 37 countries where we identified a systematic pattern of attacks on education. These attacks globally over the past five years harmed over 22,000 students, teachers, professors, and education staff. Uh, And I mentioned the past five years, but also into 2020, despite COVID-19, attacks on education and the military use of schools continued, unfortunately. And so what do I mean by attacks? Uh, We look at five different types of attacks and also the military use of schools. So let me briefly dive into uh, each of those. Um, So first we look at attacks on schools. Um, That would be uh, bombings, uh, shootouts near schools, Um, gun shelling or gunfire near schools or that actually hit school buildings, uh, anywhere from damaging to completely destroying schools, and these are about two-thirds of the attacks that we see globally. The other ones we look at are attacks on students, teachers, and education staff. That could be um, direct attacks, but also collateral damage. Then we look at the recruitment of children at or on the way uh, to or from school, also sexual violence and or on the way to or from schools. We also look at higher education attacks, which would be um, repression of protests, uh, um, detainment and arrest of protesters um, or academics or or higher education students, as well as bombing of uh, higher education infrastructure. And then we also look at the military use of schools, uh, which in general terms would is often referred to as military occupation of schools. And by this we're talking about um, schools being used as training grounds or barracks um, or uh, unfortunately execution centers and for other purposes that do not fall within uh, education. Uh, And so where are these happening? Um, The most affected countries in the past five years have been the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Yemen. Um, The central Sahel is a particular hotspot uh, recently. Um, In particular, we've been really focusing on Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali. And then other areas you might, and you you and your listeners might sort of suspect that attacks on education might be high. Um, Syria, Afghanistan, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, and um, as I mentioned, about thirty or so other countries around the world are, are our focus areas. And then you finally you asked about the uh, impacts of these attacks. They are uh, quite devastating, unfortunately. So attacks on education not only kill and harm students and teachers, but uh, they also cause teachers to flee and schools to shutter. And in addition, they have many psychological consequences on students which hinder them from um, learning later and teachers from teaching later, uh, all of which is, is, of course, quite terrible. Um, in particular, there's um, effects on women and girls. Um, For instance, pregnancy from rape, the health consequences and stigma of sexual violence, the risk of early marriage, and generally the privileging of boys' education over girls all make it very difficult for girls to return to schooling uh, after attacks. And then at the community level, there's also uh, sort of ripple effects. so this would be that schools are really a center for community development and engagement, um, but the school's now been shuttered or bombed or destroyed, um, so it's not up and running. And all of this, when you don't have students learning and you don't have a school and you don't have teachers teaching, then that also has these long-term consequences for a community, but also a region and a country in, for, in the form of um, hamstringing peace and economic development.
0: Thank you. Um, that's, a, that's been a, a really interesting overview. Um, now, your organization and, and just again on, on that area, you published an incredible report this year, um, Education Under Attack. Now, I know this isn't the first such report that you've published and um, it's, it's also been published previously in, in 2018 and at least 2014. Um, you know, in terms of that report and, and having read it, I was really struck by, you know, you mentioned the impact particularly on girls. I was really struck by some of the quotes that are used throughout that report. They add they add such depth to the data. Um, but can you, you know, in your own words, tell our listeners about this report and what, if any differences are evident, either between those 37 countries that, that you talk about, or, you know, in terms of, Historically, you know, is there any difference in the 2020 report to the 2018 to the 2014 reports?
1: Uh, absolutely. First, thank you for the kind words about the report. Um, of course, I, that feels great to hear. Um, it's always nice when uh, work is well received. Um, So, as you mentioned, there are several prior editions, and I'm happy to draw some comparisons across them. Um, This, uh, Education Under Attack, is uh, the Coalition's flagship report. It's our fifth edition. Uh, The first two were actually published by UNESCO, uh, and then the Coalition took it over. Um, Right now, we're in two-year cycles, but before, there were um, some different lengths of time. And um, of course, as, as your listeners have heard, we track attacks uh, in situations of armed conflict and insecurity. And in particular, we write chapters on countries where we identify a systematic pattern of attack. In this case, 10, um, 10 incidents of attacks on education over a two-year term. And in this last edition, we uh, profiled 37 countries. So the report sort of has like a, a broader global overview and executive summary as well as a method section, of course, but then we dive into particular um, contexts. One other um, thing to really mention with this report is is the goals. Uh, So one, with this report we want to raise awareness, we want to spur accountability, we want to give advocates credible numbers and concrete incidents that they can point to when they're meeting with ambassadors or political leaders. And we also want to offer policymakers some tangible recommendations. This report, uh, in addition, it feeds into the monitoring of Sustainable Development Goal 4, uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goal, um, which is quality education. And that goal tracks progress on the right to quality education uh, for all globally. So our data forms the basis uh, for that. So those are sort of the goals. You um, asked about comparisons across time. So this report in particular, 2020, um, found an increase in attacks on higher education. Some of those are due to bombings of universities or just um, general physical attacks on university infrastructure, uh, particularly in several Middle Eastern countries. Um, But Otherwise, some of that uptick is also um, repression, forcible repression of um, higher education uh, protesters. So those might be protesters in Venezuela, for instance, um, out on the streets uh, or within campus, demanding changes to either university policy or uh, education-related changes if they're off-campus. So for instance, they might um, be demanding a change in the national budget uh, to allocate more money, more resources towards education. Um, If there was forcible repression, um, so excessive tear gas, excessive arrests, uh, that might count as an attack on education um, because it's, it's an attack related to education, uh, even though it's off campus. So that's something that we've really picked up more of recently. Some of that could be an artifact of, um, of more data and uh, data collection methods, but some of that could be a very real increase in trend of um, state repression of political movements, and this is just one particular slice of that. Um, What are some other changes that we've seen across the years? Sometimes countries come in or out of reports. So for instance, um, we're really focusing on um, the Sahel recently. So I expect that that would be in uh, Education Under Attack 2022. Another country that was not in Education Under Attack 2020, but um, may appear in Education 20, Under Attack 2022, is uh, Mozambique, for instance. So we've recently seen a big uptick in attacks on uh, education there. It wasn't profiled. Uh, in the last report, but it may be in the future one. So that's all to say um, that changes that we see over time are uh, increases in the proportion of specific attacks on education, and then also changes in the geography of where these attacks are occurring, which are often related to changes in um, in, in international and um, crisis uh, dynamics. So for instance, the Sahel being a hotspot, ISIS declining, etc. also uh, has a big correlation with where attacks on education are occurring.
0: And that report makes some really important recommendations. Um, and again, it's, it's across those kind of areas that, that you outlined earlier on when, when you were talking about your work. Um, can you bring us through the recommendations from this year's report?
1: I would be very happy to. Um, I'm going, we offer quite a few recommendations depending on whether uh, the report reader is uh, from a foundation or is a policymaker or is a, you know, a technical expert working on data, et cetera. But I'm going to highlight five uh, kind of big picture recommendations for you and your listeners. Okay, so first and foremost, we need to stop attacks on schools uh, by state military forces and non-state armed groups, and we need um, state military forces and non-state armed groups to refrain from using schools as um, schools for military purposes. So that's uh, first and foremost. Many of the um, other recommendations we make, um, such as those around the Safe Schools Declaration and a couple of other things, are to really you know achieve that goal. Um, <clears throat> second, We want to ensure accountability for perpetrators of attacks on education. Um, In part, that's to bring redress to survivors of attacks, and then that's also in the hopes of preventing future attacks. Third, uh, we really encourage um, policy makers, uh, education providers, NGOs, And all other, you know, um, relevant actors to develop safety and security plans to prevent and respond to attacks on education Uh, and in particular plans that really take into account um, some of the gender dynamics of these attacks. So let me give you two like brief uh, examples of this third point. For instance, we would encourage um, governments to do, or education providers, to run uh, risk assessments before reopening schools. Um, before doing uh, COVID-19 related school reopenings, um, especially as second or third waves uh, occur, um, to make sure that if the school is at threat of attack, that um, school uh, principals or administrators are not pressured to reopen, and that they can do so safely, and that there are plans in place To um, either uh, protect the school from attack or if there were an attack to mitigate some of the uh, effects of that attack. Uh, And then another example of carrying out these risk assessments and, you know, putting safety and security plans into place would have to do with elections. So we see a lot of schools used as polling stations around the world. In many places that works very well, um, but in some places it puts schools at risk. So uh, the coalition has identified 11 countries in the past five years where attacks on schools occurred because those schools were used as polling stations. So a non-state-armed Group or other actor wanted to influence the political process or target a particular politician, and so they um, often through arson or uh, IEDs, or sorry, like yeah, improvised explosive device, explosive devices, um, targeted a school with obviously devastating consequences. So in those areas where schools are at risk, um, we encourage the safety and security. We encourage risk assessments and um, governments to um, carry out safety and security plans. Uh, The fourth uh, big picture recommendation uh, that we have is For um, governments and stakeholders and uh, funders to provide assistance for all survivors of attacks on education, and to make sure that their education continues. So if a school has been damaged and the students are LA, or a student is a survivor of an attack, that they're still receiving an education. And then finally, we really advocate for um, the monitoring and reporting of attacks on education to be strengthened. Uh, So what do we mean by that? For instance, uh, when attacks on education are reported by a government agency or a monitoring and reporting mechanism uh, through the UN or a local security observatory and NGO, we really encourage them to include in their reports of attacks uh, the level of schooling that was attacked, the gender of the students affected, the days of school loss, and just to really give more detail with this detail then um, prevention plans can be better prepared uh, and responses can be better made to attacks so that's really why we're encouraging um, the uh, you know the, the strengthening of monitoring and reporting and as I mentioned at the outset really our goal with all of these recommendations is to limit the number of attacks on education and limit the the incidence of military use of schools
0: A huge breadth of work like it's a you know the recommendations cover so much and as you say you tailor them to specific audiences and specific stakeholders but you know that there's a there's an incredible breadth there of of what you do so that that is definitely to be commended Um, the 9th of September this year was the first international day to protect education from attack was that a a really significant step in raising awareness of, of this issue
1: It was. It was a very exciting one. Um, The executive director of the coalition um, participated in an event, a high-level event put on by UNESCO, UNICEF, uh, Education Above All, and also hosted by the state of Qatar. Um, And so, yes, it was an exciting time for the coalition um, and for all of our partners. It has been a long time in coming, I think, um, different, NGOs and um, various agencies have really been raising alarm bells about attacks on education and the really serious consequences they have for uh, long-term development and, you know, the growth of individuals and all of these really important things. You know, uh, alarm bells have been um, raised for a while. And so this is a very um, exciting time. And it's really an occasion to reflect on progress that's been made, for instance, progress in um, the endorsement and implementation of the Safe Schools Declaration, which is a growing number of endorsing states, Um, but it's also a a moment to be reminded of this call to action because there still are so many attacks on education and they need to be addressed. So we were very glad to see this International Day uh, proclaimed and we were very happy to be a part of marking it.
0: Thank you. Um, You've mentioned there the the Safe Schools Declaration. So, you know, just to to give a little bit of context to the listeners, um, back in 2015, Norway and Argentina led the way in, in developing this declaration. And states can basically express their commitment to protecting education in areas of armed conflict by endorsing the guidelines that go with it, something that Ireland did in early 2015. In real terms, what does this declaration actually mean?
1: Absolutely. So the declaration has uh, over a hundred states that have endorsed it, and it offers um, some concrete guidance for how schools can be protected. Um, So in part, that includes the guidelines, which you uh, mentioned. And those guidelines are meant to, when the uh, Safe Schools Declaration is being implemented, meaning being brought into domestic policy, those guidelines are meant to be brought into military training manuals. They're meant to be brought into military doctrine more generally, but also the policy uh, sphere and so far as laws um, passed to both ratify the Safe Schools Declaration, but also to protect uh, schools. I, that are either uh, at risk currently, depending on if the country is in conflict, or that could be at risk were the country to fall into conflict. Um, and so the point of these guidelines, it offers uh, several concrete steps of actions that militaries can take to um, to respect the civilian character of schools and to prevent them... Um, To, you know, reduce the likelihood that they would be attacked Uh, more broadly, and I guess a little bit less concretely the safe schools declaration also builds a community of states committed to respecting the civilian nature of schools. Uh, and a community for sharing uh, good practices to protect schools and universities. So there's been several Safe Schools conferences. These are huge um, conferences. Uh, they've been in uh, Norway, Argentina, and Spain in the past, where upwards of 85 countries will be represented, um, uh, ministers of education, um, representatives of the ministries of defense, and uh, other you know government officials as well as NGOs and and other relevant actors will come together to share good practices. The next one of these, uh, the next conference will be in in Nigeria in 2021, Um, although of course everything's a little up in the air with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, Um, but the Safe Schools Declaration is kind of the guiding principles behind this community where countries can share good practices uh, with one another in hopes of... um, of sort of rippling these uh, best practices uh, into other into other contexts and really keeping more uh, students and
0: schools safe. So hopefully that conference won't be a Zoom conference next exactly. year. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of countries like Ireland, like what does the declaration mean for us? Like you know we're we have, as I say, we've endorsed it, um, but you know we're seen generally as a as quite a neutral country. So what what Does it mean to us?
1: Uh, Absolutely. So the Safe Schools Declaration, we really do um, want universal endorsement of the Safe Schools Declaration. And so your question is uh, really key because, you know, why would a country that's not in armed conflict need to uh, endorse and implement the Safe Schools Declaration? Um, And so we have a couple of responses to that. Uh, First off, This is not the case of Ireland, but uh, first off, some countries just because they are not in armed conflict does not mean that they're not engaging in conflict elsewhere. Um, So we really do want to make sure that if countries are engaging in conflict elsewhere that they are still respecting the civilian nature of schools. Uh, you know, that their uh, militaries and troops aren't using schools for military purposes uh, and they're otherwise respecting uh, civilians and children's rights uh, in particular, as well as international humanitarian law, the laws of war, uh, and everything along those lines. Uh, Likewise, countries that may not be in armed conflict often still uh, contribute troops to peacekeeping forces. So um, those might be UN peacekeeping forces or African Union peacekeeping forces and the like. And so we want to make sure that, um, that their military doctrine respects the civilian nature of schools and also that those countries might influence, let's say, NATO or African Union um, policies to do the same, to respect the civilian nature of schools. Um, and then finally, and I'm sure this won't be the case for Ireland, um, but countries may fall into conflict in the future. And so the idea is for that country to already have domestic legislation that, um, you know, that sees schools as sacrosanct. So that tells, you know, legislation that tells the military that they cannot, um, uh, that they cannot requisition a school, uh, and that they, uh, when engaging in conflict, uh, that they'll respect the civilian nature of schools. Um, so for instance, um, I don't know, the world might not have thought that Ukraine would fall into conflict, and um, but having, um, you know, having legislation on the books is a way to, you know, prevent these things going forward. Um, and then finally it's really about um how we're all impacted by uneducated children and so especially on a you know as we mark the um the the world children's day on november 20th um so we're all really impacted so countries like uh ireland in uh through either funding um different, be it NGOs or UN agencies, um, providing funds so that uh, children in conflict zones still are receiving an education, in particular girls. Uh, That's one way that this really uh, still matters for um, for countries like Ireland. But then, you know, much more broadly, having, you know, groups of uneducated children really just matters for everyone. We all have this moral obligation to children's rights. Uh, one of which, of course, is education. And uh, so World Children's Day, you know, is meant to promote global togetherness. And this is one way that that can really be done, is thinking about what children are going through uh, elsewhere and the the rights that they still um, need to realize, even if they're in conflict zones. Um, And then, you know, sort of building on that, these cycles of war and poverty and inequality uh, really do affect the entire world. And so if we want to end those, then we need more education. And that falls on countries that even aren't in conflict or aren't sending troops to conflict zones. They still have a global responsibility, as this day really reminds us.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, Obviously, for a country like Ireland, we do have in our relatively recent past um, a a certain degree of armed conflict. Um, And it is, as you say, really important that we have something on the books, that we have something that we have signed up to, that we have endorsed, but also in this relatively peaceful time for ourselves, um, that we have that kind of more globalised view of the world and we understand just how important having education actually is and how transformative it can be. Um, and I thank you so much for that. Um, just finally then for you, Jerome, you know, is there if there was, you know, one, two, three main points, main messages that you would like to, to get out there, what would they be?
1: Uh, absolutely, thank you for um, asking. Well, first, uh, since we're marking World Children's Day, Um, I would just like to really drive home the point that uh, we should all be uniting around children and improving children's welfare. Um, And part of that is respecting children's right to education and right to personal growth and development, even in times of war. Children have the need and the right and the will to learn, even if they're in conflict zones, and this is something that I think a lot of people forget, uh, and I'm not really sure why, um, but especially since conflicts are so protracted uh, in recent decades, so we're seeing conflicts that last years and years, unfortunately. So, you know, what are what are the kids supposed to do? Just not go to school at all until they're 25? Uh, that's really not an option. So if we want cycles of war to end, and we want children to have their rights, they need to be still receiving some kind of education. Maybe that's distance learning, um, but as we all know, in conflict zones, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, in some ways life goes on. So if it's an IDP camp or internally displaced person camp or refugee camp, but also in, um, in cities that are under siege, students will still go to school, students will still um, you know do distance learning and whatever radio or or however they can. Also in rural areas this is still going on and um, so you know children that's really like a uh, it's a right that we need to really um, be respecting and ensuring And um, the thing about school is that it provides students with a routine. It provides them, often it gives them access to psychosocial support or food or other resources that they need. And if they are a survivor of an attack on education, it can really help them, um, you know, through... through psychosocial support, or in other ways, it can help them uh, really uh, get back on their feet and, um, you know, really move forward. So education has to continue. And I think that for whatever reason, people sort of forget that children in conflict zones have the right to education. uh, And then they don't think about sort of the, like, long-term aspects of this. So if we... The thing about attacks on education is that, in some ways, they're also... um, Education is also the remedy. So if the spark to these attacks is inequality and poverty and lack of development and um, Certain ideologies. uh, A lot of the solution to that problem is more education. Um, So that's really why, and I know I've said this a thousand times now, but children in conflict zones need to receive an education. And when I speak with people outside of like this particular sphere, they seem to forget that kids in war zones might still need or be going to or have the right to education. So that's really the main key thing that I would like people to take away as we celebrate World Children's Day is that this is a particular fundamental right that we should all be thinking about.
0: Perfect. Thank you so, so much, Jerome, for joining me this evening.
1: Uh, Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be on your um, podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Hopefully you found this episode interesting. There's plenty of information on this topic on the website of the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack. That's protectingeducation.org. It's well worth a look. If you have any ideas you'd like to see covered or any seminars you'd like to see turned into a podcast, please do email us on secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.